Support for this podcast comes from Canva. When you look good, you feel good. But when your presentations look great, it can feel like you're walking on a cloud. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. Start with a designer-made template. Use it as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to the 83rd episode of the Prop G Pod. In today's episode, we're bringing you part two of our interview with Sam Harris. We discuss with Sam the dangers of woke culture, misinformation, and how to have more effective conversations. This is something I think about a lot. I think of myself as a warrior for progressive values uh, and want to be an ally and find myself uh, oftentimes because of what I perceive as unfair judgments or people not taking gestures with the intention they were intended and using it as an excuse to make a caricature of someone's comments and come after you. And I find that in some instances, it has made me somewhat indifferent to their cause, not an enemy, whereas I used to be an ally but indifferent, and it's dangerous. There's plenty of discussion around what it means to be woke, some of it well-founded, some of it hyperbola. Yes, absolutely be awake to the privileges and prejudices that surround you and rigorously honest about the world you're inheriting. But in my view, the word has lost that original meaning. Beyond the media noise, an insidious pattern is emerging in academic and professional settings. The insistence on filtering everything through the lens of personal identity and experience, the prioritization of victimhood, the belief that to be offended is to be right. Reacting to every slight and demanding satisfaction from every insult is what the system wants you to do. Joining a Twitter mob seizing on a hapless middle manager or an out-of-touch English professor may feel like justice, but it's just a cheap drip of dopamine lost in an ocean of social media profits. So my advice, my advice, be a warrior. Before you resort to violence, make a thoughtful assessment Register the intention behind people's gestures, ideas, and words. Don't make a caricature of people's actions and speech so you can draw your sword and feel righteous. Be a highly skilled, devastatingly strong warrior who exerts their power by example and leaves their weapon in its sheath. Forgiveness is also a strength. Demonstrate it every day. Be a warrior, not a wokester. All right, on that note, Let's get into our conversation with Sam Harris. Sam, welcome back. Happy to be here, Scott. So let's, we're going to do a conversation around woke culture. You often talk about the dangers of woke culture and how it coincides with misinformation. Can you um, speak to this and also talk a little bit about the impact on our social discourse? Yeah, so so what this phenomenon is, is... is um, hotly disputed now. I mean, there are people who will tell you this is a non-issue. This goes by many names. 
Um, there are many intersecting problems here, but it's you know it's identity politics, it's woke culture, it's cancel culture, it's um, you know, far left activism, uh, it's you know, the, the social justice movement. You know by its um, its adherence. Um, you know, and or it's anti-racism. You know, if to take racism as as one variable, right? It's you know, it, who could who could disagree with anti-racism? Don't we all all mm-hmm. want to be anti-racist? Um, anti-fascism. You know, who could disagree with anti-fascism? Would you know, what are you a fan of fascism? Right. So there are many memes here and concepts that disorder our thinking about what's actually going on here. But what the, I think what is should be uncontroversial is that. There is a um, criticism of resistance to allergy to free speech on a wide variety of topics now. Mm-hmm. now there, you know, the, 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 this is not necessarily a First Amendment issue. We're not talking about the government infringing upon people's right to, to speak freely. But what we are seeing is that more and more, if you touch a specific topic in the wrong way, you are open to a kind of... Uh, reputational destruction and quote cancellation uh, that seems fundamentally new and 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 this has you know been weaponized on social media. There are these you know mobbings on Twitter that would be very easy to withstand if people didn't care about them, but people really do care about them, and corporations mm-hmm. care about them, and universities care about them, and so what we're seeing is a. Um, really a, a ubiquitous failure of nerve on the part of uh, the, the most powerful people in our society. You know, the CEOs of major corporations will, you know, call for someone to be fired the moment there's a, a, a significant backlash on Twitter over something they might have said or tweeted uh, a decade ago, even as teenagers, right? You have mm-hmm. uh, you know cases now too numerous to to cite uh, of people who have just you know lost jobs they just got because someone discovered something they tweeted when they were seventeen or something that they you know said on a hot mic um, that really wasn't even all that offensive, but someone got offended by it. Uh, you have people who have had their careers destroyed for using a slur, but not as a slur, right? So to, like merely talking about the N-word, even in the mode of saying, listen, we we really have to be careful never to utter this word, right? But using mm-hmm. the magic syllables in that context, and those magic syllables are deemed so radioactive that they get fired, even when no one calling for them being fired thinks that they uh, used the the word as a slur or th- even thinks that they're racist, right? I mean, it's like saying, you know, the word Voldemort in the, the Harry Potter, uh, Harry Potter mm-hmm. novel, you know, it's, it's, we're now in the, in the realm of magic and superstition and taboo. And, you know, I'm not the first person to notice that all of this has the character of a cult-like phenomenon or, or a religious phenomenon or a, or a pseudo spiritual awakening. And this is, this is happening, I think, disproportionately, in you know the younger generations, um, but it has captured guys and gals our age uh, who are you know running most of the world. I mean, we, people who have a lot of skin in the game, who have something to lose, are 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 so risk averse here that they're just the moment something begins to brew on Twitter, 
you know, you've got editors and administrators at universities and CEOs just uh, trying to put the fire out by any means necessary. And the means they too often take is a, a mere abject capitulation to the mob. Yeah, I'm dealing with this personally. Um, I'm supposed to do uh, launch a show, the Prop T show on uh, Bloomberg, and I put out a teaser without their permission, a little 30-second teaser that was profane, vulgar, references to religion, sex, mm-hmm. and immediately heard back that some people in the newsroom were offended. And they wanted me to, A, clarify that they didn't approve this, which was the truth, and I was happy to do that, but also to muster up as an authentic an apology as possible. And I refused to do that because I said, look, I'm not sorry. I, I get it wrong all mm. the time. I never, I never seek to offend people, but I don't avoid it. And I think entertainment and being vulgar and profane has been conflated with something much more sinister. And it just feels very, um, almost like thought police. And I'm curious to get your take on this. When I think about, in their studies, the people who overcome injustice, who are resilient, who bust out of their standards or bust out of the uh, a hand that's not great that's been dealt them, one of the key components of that type of resilience is them believing they have a locus of control. Mm. And it feels to me like a lot of this is leading, trying to tr- tell young people that they don't have agency, that there's a good chance that something in their background has, has deemed them unable to compete, unable to dig out of this hole. And I wonder if we're just undermining our own ability to create a more just society when we constantly tell people, you know, the die have been cast for you. It feels very, not only unproductive, it feels counterproductive. Any thoughts, Sam? Yeah, well, first on the point of apology, I think your your intuitions are quite sound there. I mean, first, I think you should never apologize falsely. I mean, you shouldn't, if, if it's not honest, you should never offer an apology. If you, if you don't think you did anything wrong, um, I think that kind of damage control uh, always back backfires. 100%. But in the current environment, it really, even, even honest apologies seem to backfire, right? Mm-hmm. So like, I think you, you know, it, it would be hard for me not to apologize for something that I really think I should apologize for. I mean, that just yeah. seems like, you know, like a the, the decent thing to do. But in the current environment, it really does seem like you run a risk because mm-hmm. the, the research is showing that apologies not only don't help, but they people uh, feel, uh, you know, a greater disgust over the thing you, you know, may or may not mm-hmm. have done or almost did. And so it's, you know, you from a PR, just a purely pragmatic PR point of view, uh, you, you one should always question whether apologizing is is the right thing to do. But as far as this this issue around the victimology that is being recommended on on uh, more or less all fronts, I mean, this this really this is two at least two things wrong with this. One is the point you make is that you know, around locus of control and just how one how one thinks about one's advantages and disadvantages in life and um, whether and to what degree it's ever useful to view oneself as a victim, right? And we seem mm-hmm. to have this, this um, a spreading ideology that power is found in victimization now. I mean, mm-hmm. like the, the most victim points you 
you can marshal is is that I mean, that is that is the path to power and and perversely it is in this subculture among activists and uh, hysterics who are you know fomenting this moral panic you know around issues of race and gender uh, and sexuality and um, not so much religion but religion does fall into it insofar as it's a surrogate for for race in many people's minds so. Um, I mean, if you find yourself, you know, criticizing one religion more than another, you know, let's say if you're me and you talk about the problem mm -hmm. with Islam uh, during times of jihadist terrorism, well, then you that begins to fall in, in the same rubric, and and Muslims, you know, are, are viewed as a victim group, um, and you know, again, this for reasons that have no coher coherence whatsoever, this is often framed as as a as a racial question. Uh, Anyway, the identity politics is at the bottom of all of this, and it's you know from my point of view absolutely clear that increasingly solidifying our ident our our identities around various sub subgroups that have zero sum uh, political concerns, right? And they're just bound to be winners and losers if you're advocating for one group versus other groups. Rather than a common project for for an entire society, it's obvious this is a bad idea. It's obvious that progress resides in the other direction, right? It's obvious that we're not going to overcome racism, for instance, in our society by caring more and more about race and about racial difference and about the actual color of a person's skin, right? I mean that that can't be the direction we should be going in, and yet that's the the direction that's being advocated by these, you know, so-called woke activists, and I mean, one thing to to be aware of. I mean, it's it's, it's hard to to notice in real time, but it is just in, in fact the case that it it can be a tiny minority of people who are um, consuming all of the oxygen in the conversation and making it seem like there's a consensus. Around specific issues, right? So it's not—it's not a majority of people who are woke or who think that, you know, the last guy who got canceled for his his or her non-existent racism should have been canceled. But they're so loud and they're so ins insistent and they're so unavailable to you know kind of ra the rational part of the conversation that they win, right? And and they and they scare everyone else into silence and. It's and they and they force upon the rest of us a kind of coordination problem because this whole problem would go away if you could get ten thousand people to step forward at the same moment and be rational, right? But because you can't engineer that, it becomes rational for any one person not to step forward by by him or herself and become the target of the next cancellation. Right, so like we, we can, this is this is like the you know it's a, it's a it's a dark emperor's new clothes phenomenon where everyone is pointing to some fake moral atrocity and reacting to it, but the, the those who are who are reacting most loudly to it are the eight percent of people on the far left who are you know the, the woke activist class. And everyone else just doesn't want to go near this thing because they don't want to be the next target. And there's just no incentive to, to put yourself out there 
unless you happen to be a you know a public intellectual whose job is to do that. Um, there's no incentive to do that, especially if you're white, especially if you're rich, especially if you're male. I mean, it's like you're just the wrong person to be doing it, right? So that's why we have this this seeming silent consensus that this is all this is all making sense, right? And that that you know, allegations that the you know the Academy Awards are racist, right? Like, mm-hmm. like what we've seen over and over again are some of the least racist pockets of humanity that have ever, ever existed, uh, be condemned as racist and castigate themselves as racist in order to get the mob off of them. Right. So you mm-hmm. have Juilliard, you know, the, the drama department of Juilliard just went through this, right? It's 50% people of color, right. And it's rending itself over its racism and, you know, systemic and otherwise, and the, you know, all of the violence meted out upon the black bodies of its students uh, over this this um, unconscionable status quo. Again, you're talking about the least racist social experiments that have ever happened in in the career of our species, right? And and so there's so, something is 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 wrong here, and yet you win no points for saying this alone, right? We need we need the ten thousand people. Who who matter to step forward and say, okay, enough is enough. Let's let's uh, talk sanely about the boundaries of real racism, uh, and and uh, and let's let's acknowledge first of all how much progress we've made uh, on this front, right? I mean, we it's like you know, yes, the the, the four years under Trump um, were an embarrassing anomaly on the on the arc of moral progress. Uh, and probably did unmask some some pockets of concern in our society that we you know that were that are worth worrying about, right? I mean, I think the 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 far fringe on the right is still the fringe, right? And it's not mm-hmm. that we have a white supremacist uh, nation. And what we're talking about here is is an asymmetry that is worth paying attention to because the far fringe on the left isn't the fringe. The far fringe on the left has significantly captured academia and media and tech and Hollywood, right? So that's, that's why it's worth responding to. Coming up after the break. You have to extend a principle of charity, even to people who you're pretty sure you're going to totally disagree with. And even if you think they're committed to genuinely bad ideas, you should care to, to get those ideas right. Stay with us. When your work presentations and docs look good, you look good. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. You can start with a designer-made template, then use that as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Or get a huge head start with AI-powered Canva presentations and docs. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides and text in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever work task you need to get done. Look, we all need to visually communicate at work. Canva makes it easy to get your point across while looking professional. And at the end of it all, that stunning Canva presentation is going to make you look good. Wow any audience and finish your work faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Yeah, I, I was uh, talking to some of the regents of the University of California, and we were talking about um, resources. And I made the comment that you know, typically uh, offices of diversity and, uh, and inclusion, there's a lot of these popping up at universities, um, are coming about in the, in the most diverse and inclusive places in the world. Right. It's strange. We're allocating resources to this in the areas that need it the least. Right. And uh, also, and I'd like to think, I'm curious if you see this, or maybe it's just wishful thinking, that we are beginning to see a bit of a gag reflex or a pushback on the notion that to be offended is to be right. And that while you can be, and it goes back, the term used is exactly the right one, incentives. There's a lot of incentive to be offended and outraged. And to, ex- and to make a caricature of someone's comments and extrapolate it to, a, to an untrue uh, gesture, mischaracterize it such that you can be upset and you're seen as a leader, you're seen as virtuous, and you get all sorts of uh, points. But if someone, if someone crosses a line and uh, takes comments totally out of context and has proven to be a bad actor and, and going after someone for the wrong reasons and using some of these issues is a, is a, is a red herring or a false flag. There's no, there's, there's very little disincentive or punishment around that. It just feels as if it feels as if there's, okay, if you incorrectly cancel someone, well, you were doing your best. You're a warrior, right? Right. And there's some shrapnel, but uh, you know, there are a lot of people have been canceled and we look back and think, should they have been canceled? I mean, I, I think of Al Franken being canceled. And then I think, what price has Kristen Gillibrand? Most people acknowledge that uh, Al Franken, that they were probably heavy handed with an individual who was constantly fighting for many of these disenfranchised groups, a, a, a real effective advocate for a lot of, for a lot of groups. Uh, but Senator Kristen Gillibrand has paid no price. Right, right. Do you think that there's a bit, do you think that we're potentially, that the pendulum is beginning to swing back or is it getting worse? It's hard to take the temperature of that because I just, I recognize the extent to which all of us are in one echo chamber or another, despite our best efforts. I mean, just the, mm-hmm. just the kinds of media you wind up seeing. Um, but I think there will, there will be a, a backlash to this. I, I'm worried about the wrong kind of backlash. I mean, I'm, I'm worried that it's the, the, the silent seething of everyone who has been uh, either victimized or or knows someone who was victimized or is just is, has been spectating upon this horror show for long enough is is coarsening people and you know hardening their hearts in the face of real problems right so i mean so like racism racism is it still exists it's a real problem and racism aside the problem of inequality is immense right I mean, there's an immense problem of of wealth inequality and health inequality I and mean, just social inequalities of various kinds and they're they're significantly correlated with race for reasons that are complex and need to be discussed rationally 
but I'm worried that people who who's who feel like their backs are against the wall or they can't say anything that they think in public anymore and it even becomes increasingly hard in private i'm worried that the backlash that could come is just a frankly a kind of increase in racism right or but, but isn't the backlash was, didn't the backlash happen wasn't it donald trump weren't people under the breath just so disgusted with this out of control political correctness and when someone came along and was so politically incorrect, he was arguably a racist, a bigot. They, they ignored it and they voted for him. Hasn't the backlash yeah, happened? You know, well, so that's, that's, that's one backlash, but I'm worried about a more subtle and insidious and uh, more well-subscribed backlash. I mean, I'm worried mm-hmm. about myself, frankly. I mean, someone like me, right? I, now, this mm-hmm. is, you know, it's unlikely to happen to me because I, I you know, this, this is my full-time preoccupation to not get this sort of thing wrong. But I can easily see someone just like me after seeing one after another dishonest claim of victimhood, right? To just, the temptation is to throw up your hands and say, just fuck it. I'm, I'm done caring about this particular flavor of human problem, right? Like, get you, you guys work it out, right? Let me know when you've sorted out your problems in the inner city or, you know, wherever you are. I'm done thinking about it, right? Now, that's not the kind of person I want to be, but the level of dishonesty behind so many of these allegations is so appalling, right? And so corrosive of so much else that we value and should value, right? Re, you know, the real reputations of good people who are not racist just mm-hmm. going up in flames over fault, you know, just deranged allegations that, uh, no sane person should have ever been taken in by, right? I mean, Al Franken, Al Franken is kind of a liminal case. Um, I, I, I share your view of it. And, and you know, it was in, at the time in counterpoint with just the, the, the obvious depredations of Roy Moore, right? You know, who was grabbing 14-year-olds mm-hmm. and, and, and suffering no penalty in his who world. Who almost won. Who yeah, almost exactly. won. Right, so, that, so that, that, that asymmetry politically, even if your, your concern is just politics, that asymmetry is unsustainable. The fact that we have a circular firing squad on the left where we, you know, kill the, you know, we, we just kill one another, you know, without the slightest hesitation and, uh, you know, just hurling senators overboard for, you know, comical photos. And on the other side, you can be a pedophile, you can be a, a, a serial abuser, you can be a, yeah, just a maniac. disabled. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. I'm worried about tribalism, you know, I'm worried about, it's like, obviously, uh, you don't want to be identified with a subset of humanity that isn't, that, that is smaller than humanity, right? You, you, you want, we want to be human beings getting better and better at cooperating mm-hmm. with 8 billion strangers to solve massive problems and to enjoy massive opportunities. And we don't want to be people who are constantly doing the the Dungeons and Dragons calculations uh, with each roll of the dice on, wait a minute, I'm an elf who's cisgendered, you know, but I'm short and, you know, I uh, am not green enough to count as part of your tribe, right? It's like, it's an awful game to be playing and to be identified as, I mean, so ultimately, I mean, the punchline for me is, to take again to take race as as one salient variable here, but obviously there's these, these adjacent issues like you know gen, gender and 
and even religion. I think we have to get to a place where the color of a person's skin is no more interesting than the color of their hair, you know, morally and politically, right? We just do not care how many redheads are working at Google right now, mm -hmm. right? No one has thought to look, right? And no one, if, if we found that there was some imperfect fidelity between the, 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 the numbers of, of, of redheads at Google and Apple and other major corporations and their representation in, in society at large, I don't think anyone would find that interesting and they certainly wouldn't lose any sleep over it. Now, I understand we're not coming from a, we don't have a legacy of caring too much about hair color that we're trying uh -huh. to come out from under, uh -huh. uh, but we are so close to being out from under a truly racist, uh, the, the, the truly racist legacy that that is behind us. And to then sort of turn on our heels at this, you know, when we're on the final, you know, something like the final yard and declare that not only have we made no progress, this is like the height of the, emergent, the, the emergency now, right? It's sanity straining and it's, it's, and it's a lie, right? It's just, it's just a lie. And, and so it's, um, it's like we've run out of real racists to find. And so now our racist detector had to be recalibrated. And now we're finding, you know, fake racists everywhere. Right. And, and, um, it's, I, so I do think, yes, I think people are getting fed up with it. I know they're getting fed up with it in private. I mean, I, I have these conversations and I get these emails, um, and I talk to the CEOs who won't say anything publicly. And I talk to the venture capitalists who won't say anything publicly. Again, because there's no percentage in, in it for them. You know, there's, there are too yeah. many people relying on them for their financial well-being. Why would they want to come on a podcast and say that they're not woke? Yeah, there's. Uh, it, it struck me as uh, you talk about the self-defeating strategy where, you know, the moderates are where elections are won. If you think of it, it's important to have a government representative, a progressive government, a, an empathetic government. It's, it's one in the middle. And it strikes me that a, a lot of people in the middle who we profess to be, you know, raging moderates are so turned off by this that to your point, we, we don't become, we don't go from allies to being enemies of progressive values, but we become indifferent. And that is we just get exhausted by it and we become resentful of mm -hmm. anyone, of any, you know, of, of, of a civil discourse around it. It doesn't seem like there's any room for civil discourse. What are some steps to try and make the, the dialogue uh, more productive and uh, move back to this being a little bit more generous with each other, realizing that progress is a function of conflict and debate instead of, instead of always looking for reasons uh, to go after one another? Well, I think a principle of charity is essential and it, it has to be one's default. And, and when, you, when you lose your purchase on it, you have to notice that and, and get back to it, no matter who you're talking to. I mean, I, I think you should extend a principle of charity even to people who you think are probably bad actors, right? And who you don't want to have anything to do with. I mean, principle of charity is just, you know, allow your opponent, allow the person you're talking to, to put forward their best case. And if, mm -hmm. they're, if they're not especially sure-footed in doing that, help midwife the best case so that you, then when you respond, you're actually dealing with the best case, 
right? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you're steel manning rather than straw manning their position. Right. right. Um, whereas most people do their best to straw man the opponent so that they can knock it down, especially in, in the performative way we see on social media. That's what, that's the default. Um, and worse than that, it's not just a straw man. People, people will hold you accountable to the least charitable, barely plausible version of what you said. The, the, I mean, and the most odious possible construal of what you said. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it, you know, I mean, I've had this happen even where it's the uh, literally the opposite of what you've said. I mean, I, so my my cartoon version of this, but I mean, the cartoon has been has been achieved in in many cases for me. The cartoon ver- version of this is if if I said uh, black people are just apes, mm-hmm. white people are just apes, we're all just apes. Racism doesn't make any sense, right? If that's mm-hmm. the total statement. There are people who would make a meme with with my that says black people are just apes, Sam Harris, right. and put that out there, right? I have those enemies, and you know they're not going away. And so now, and and I've kind of given up the game trying to um, speak so carefully that you could not possibly arm your enemies with that kind of you know verbatim ammunition, and it's just. It's unav- it's unavoidable. I mean, you just can't live that way. So you you have to trust people to stay around until you get to the end of the paragraph to understand what you actually intend to say. But you know, on one's own side, ethically, as a matter of improving conversation, you have to extend a, a principle of charity even to people who you're pretty sure you're going to totally disagree with, and even if you think mm-hmm. they're committed to genuinely bad ideas. You should care to to get those ideas right. So, like you know, there there are people who I think are pretty unsavory, right? Whose views I do not share, but it matters. Like if the allegation is, you know, they're bigoted, right? Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing as calling them a Holocaust denier, right? If you call them a Holocaust denier, and they really are not, they just they. they they don't deny the Holocaust. I think six million Jews were killed, et cetera, et cetera. Right? That inaccuracy matters, right? It, it matters legally in some countries where Holocaust denial is actually illegal. It's actually a crime, mm-hmm. but it just matters intellectually and morally. It's like you you have to you have to target. I mean, this this happened a lot with Trump, right? Like I I think I'm reasonably sure Trump really is a racist, right? Mm-hmm. But fully half, if not three quarters of the allegations of racism against him were so badly targeted as to be false and undefensible, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was every opportunity to construe anything he said or did as racist was taken by the left. Mm-hmm. And it was almost always wrong, right? Now, I think I know enough about Trump. I mean, most of what I think I know about Trump, I know, you know, it's the kind of behind closed doors stuff, which is is not, you know, is not really publicly actionable. But um, it matters. So it's like, uh, you know, as, as a critic of Trump, and I really put myself in, in second position to no one for the, you know, the kind of velocity of my diatribes against him, you know, when he was in office, um, I was constantly parsing the valid criticisms from the invalid ones, right? Mm-hmm. And, the, and, I was, and I was doing my best to disavow the invalid ones because... Um, it's just it's corrosive if you're if you're going to get if trump says something that 
you're going to score as racist. And it really could be totally innocent and would seem totally innocent if someone else said it. Well, then you have to keep track of that. Otherwise, that someone else is going to be tarred with precisely the same allegation when they say that, that innocuous thing. We'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In the last minute here, Sam, the last time you were on the podcast, you said something that was really profound for me, and that is you were talking about fatherhood, and you said that your observation personally was, yeah, you need to be uh, a disciplinarian. You need to be someone who coaches them, someone who advises them, someone who course corrects them. But more than anything, occasionally or, or more, you just need to love them. (laughs) And it tangibly changed my behavior because when I would put my kids to bed, I saw that as like a teaching moment. I might review the day, especially Mm. my younger one who's a bit tougher. I find the majority of our interaction is around me course correcting him, feeling that that's my responsibility. I'm the disciplinarian. I'm supposed to be the guy that tells him where he got it wrong. And I've tried to be much more active in just taking that ratio of time or taking more of that space and just loving them. Yeah, and so I would like you to just finish. Uh, any any other observations on uh, parenting and fatherhood coming out of the, or hopefully coming out of the pandemic? Well, just more and more, I'm uh, aware of the the passage of time that that everything changes, right? And this, this is all obviously over the course of years and and months, but it's it's the over the course of days, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience many times at this point as a dad where you look at your kid and you realize there's been some kind of, some step change in growth, whether it's physical growth or just kind of a a firmware upgrade. (laughs) Yeah. But like, yeah, yeah, it's like it happened on a Thursday, right? Like they're, they're just bigger, you know, and they're, or they're just, they have a different mind, right? They're just, they're using words differently or they have a different, attitude around um life and this change is indelible right like they're never you're never going to get back he's gone the 12 year old is gone no he's gone yeah so how much did you enjoy wednesday because thursday arrived and you have a new person in your house and i i there's something phantasmagorical about parenthood where I, i find myself continually lulled back into this this default expectation that I'm dealing the, the person I'm dealing with now is the person I'm always going to be dealing with, right? Like, it's like, this is the relationship. This is, this is my daughter now. And when, so when, whenever there's a change, I'm always ambushed by it. And that is, uh, I mean, more and more the preciousness of the opportunity to enjoy every single stage is becoming salient to me, mm-hmm. right? It's like, I don't, it's, it's not, I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss any of it. I don't want to fail, fail to connect with any of it. I don't want to lose the opportunity to have adequately communicated 
my love to the person my daughter was at that point in her development, right? I don't get that opportunity back again. Um, so I just, I mean, it's, it's the, the preciousness of, of the moment and the, the incessance of change is, is something that is, is, I'm just, I'm reflecting on that more and more. And, you know, being locked in a house together for, um, 15 months or so during the pandemic was made that, um, even more obvious. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm going to make a conscious effort not to lose because I, it's just, I, you know, it's not the only important thing in, in my life. Obviously I've got work and I've got other relationships and I have, you know, you just have the solitude of your own mind, which ultimately you can never get away from. I mean, when you, when you, um, you know, you really are as happy as you can be happy in each moment, uh, apart from all of the other things you engage in. And I would say apart, apart even from the, these core relationships, but, um, I'm, I'm like you. I can fall. I can fall into the trap of teaching and you know just just pedagogy and uh, you know think that I'm edifying my my daughters in some necessary way. And this and you know some of that's unavoidable. You want that, but ultimately it has to be fun and it has to be communicative of the love that you feel. You know, I mean, you want them to. You want you don't want there to be a shadow, you don't want there, there to be a shadow of a doubt at any point in their lives that their dad really loves them, you know, and, and that's, you know, so whatever you can do to make that beyond the possibility of doubt, I think you, you want that. And, uh, and I think it's possible to erode that confidence in ways that you might not expect and, or didn't, certainly didn't intend. Right. You know, it's just, and I, I do think slipping into, into disciplinarian mode or pedag or teacher mode too much and too often and, and, uh, can be a part of that. I mean, it just, it can seem like criticism and, and, you know, I think that your, your kids can get starved for, for just a, a, a communication that has no real agenda. So I think really just being with them and being happy with them is is the is the sweet spot. Sam Harris is a neuroscientist, philosopher, and author of five New York Times bestsellers. He's also the podcast host of Making Sense and the creator of the Waking Up Meditation app. He joins us from his home in Los Angeles. Sam, stay safe. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. Algebra of happiness. So we referenced in our discussion with Sam Harris something you said that had really resonated with me, and that is, as dads, uh, it's easy for us to fall into, it's probably just true of parents in general, into this construct, and it makes sense, where you're there to correct your children, where you're there to guide them, where you're there to advise them, counsel them. And I always saw my role as to kind of be, or have seen my role as to sort of be the heavy and disciplinarian and take them aside and tell them that I have these little episodes called, this is what a man does. And I tell my kids, this is what a man does. When they toast people, they look everyone in the eyes. This is what a man does. When he meets people, he uh, grabs their hand firmly and he looks at, this is what a man does. When we have visitors, you offer to take their luggage to the car. This is what a man does. He protects others. Anyways, I'm constantly editing and correcting my boys. And that's important. 
Uh, no one did it for me. I think I lacked a lot of character and professional success um, early on in my career because just no one was course correcting me around anything. Uh, anyways, it didn't mean this to be all about me. I'm outstanding at figuring out a way to turn it all into let's talk more about me. But uh, something that Sam said uh, in the last time we interviewed really resonated with me and tried to take some action around it. And that is on a regular basis, distinctive review of the day or of their behavior, but just to spend more time loving them. And this has had a real impact on my time with my kids. And that is, I used to think about every interaction with them as an opportunity to tell stories and learning moments. And now I'm just ensuring that, you know, as I'm walking to the park with my kid, I remind them, you know why we walk to the park? And my son will say, why don't I say, because my favorite thing in the world, and my favorite thing in the world is spending time with you and your brother. Um, and constantly trying to remind them of how much worth they have and and also couch your advice in the context of, you know, you know why I do this, right? And and they'll tell you why they, they know you're doing it. But uh, trying to increase the uh, ratio of time, just showing them why you're doing all this and it's because you love them a great deal. Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Show from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll catch you next week on Monday and Thursday. Still not used to that. Thanks to Canva for their support. You're busy, there's no denying that, and we all wish for just a little more time in the day. So why not let Canva help you get your work done faster and more efficiently? You can get started with their AI-powered presentations. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever task you need to get done. Finish your deck faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.